You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Matt Damon, Gary White, and Arun Krishnamurthy join the Post to discuss innovative ideas for expanding access to clean and safe sources of water. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. We're recognizing World Water Day and our climate solutions programming today. In the next half hour, we'll have actor Matt Damon and his water.org co-founder, Gary White. But first, I'm very pleased to welcome Arun Krishnamurthy of the Environmentalist Foundation of India. Welcome, Arun. Thank you for the invitation and my greetings to all those who are tuning in through this program. We're delighted to have you. Arun, you quit a job at Google in order to focus on the environment. Tell us about that change, the decision that led to it, and then why water of the various considerations you could have undertaken? All of us have a childhood memory. All of us have an affiliation to something which which holds on to our thought, to our life. And for me, it has been water. Uh, only my job responsibilities in Google have come to an end, but my emotional connect uh, still continues. And I've been very fortunate to have several launch platforms whether it's the Rolex Awards for Enterprise through which they supported my project or uh, different sets of volunteers from across the country who've uh, strengthened our efforts at EFI. Why water? Because water is a magical element and uh, it's a habitat, right, which hosts life. That's what brings a difference to this planet and the several others that we are still researching on. And every lake or a pond for me is a world in itself with a frog, with a snake, with a bird, with so many vegetation around. It's it's a whole new world which supports so many different lives. And conserving those water bodies is the way forward. And that's exactly why I chose water. And I've been continuing to work on it through my platform. So tell us a little bit about that platform, the Environmentalist Foundation of India. Uh, what does it do and how is it funded? Almost all of us, uh, if we're given a piece of paper and a pencil to draw something about nature, most of us would draw a hill, we'll draw a stream, we'll draw a tree, a V-shaped bird in the sky. All of us want to see the rivers be clean. All of us want to see all those trees grow tall. But which one of us is taking part in conservation? And that's where the big question comes. We are ready to take part. Unfortunately, we do not know where to start. And being a common citizen of uh, one of the largest democracies in the world, I was struggling to find a platform through which I could participate. I wanted to be part of the solution, not the problem, but I did not know where to go. And that is exactly how, based out of desperation, this organization by itself was born. A complete volunteer-driven platform through which we became that somebody for India's environment rather than waiting for someone to take action uh, based on the rule of the land, based on nature philosophies. We came together, we started cleaning lakes and ponds manually. One thing led to another and uh, we, we are now a 15-member team. We have 15 states in the country over the last 14 years. We are funded through very many philanthropists through corporate social responsibility funding from businesses within India. And as I was mentioning, my first seed funding came from the Rolex Awards for Enterprise. So we've had 
very many collaborations it's not just money it's a resource that one needs even if you give me a lot of money i would not know what to do with it for an environment program i would rather need resources which includes science technology human resource and more the collaboration is what makes conservation possible possible and that's what we are trying to do at efi Arun, you have said that India has a water story to tell. What did you mean by that? What is India's water story? Um, I've always been fascinated by India and her uh, evolution, if I may call so. Uh, every river in the country has a culture and a civilization, a story to tell. Unfortunately, a lot of that information has gone unrecorded or has not been shared widely. uh that's exactly where i wish to even bring to the notice of the audience uh, about jungle book and for most of us jungle book is this uh, nature phenomena is this fantasy world so rudyard kipling by himself drew inspiration from one river the van ganga river which flows in central india and it just let his imagination run loose and that's how we got that epic jungle book and when i read jungle book and when i go to these places where sir rajat kipling had walked had seen i myself uh, understood that that's that's exactly what india's water story is the animals that depend on that water uh, the innovation that has come through through that water for example visionaries like south india we had a great leader by name uh, thirukalingarayan who who actually cut a huge canal canal system way back in those days where there were no machinery where there's no technology of the modern world but he still brought water from a surplus river to a completely arid zone through just perseverance and commitment through his lifetime like this there are very many individual heroes who've brought water to the needy who've brought water to those who actually don't have access to fresh water those stories have been forgotten and they're not being highlighted and that's what i meant by india's water stories and that needs to be shared so that we care for our water bodies rivers lakes ponds we cannot treat them as dumping sites we cannot treat them as resources meant only for human beings and we need to draw inspiration from our ancient civilization whether it's in india sri lanka anywhere in the subcontinent or anywhere in the world human civilization and water has a deep connection and has life lessons for all of us to learn from that brings me to a question about about your your drawing back into this this barrier of evocative stories and also to history there's so much talk about innovation in dealing with the climate but you seem to look back as well can you explain to me how those two things fit together um this isn't rocket science that's what i've understood and we are talking about a global crisis for which there needs to be localized solutions and those localized solutions have to come from grassroots and it cannot be dictated from laboratories or policy makers world over uh, because what's happening today is the climate crisis is not reaching the common citizen it is still being debated spoken about elsewhere but whereas a lot of environmental damage is in the grassroots that's exactly where we need to use platforms such as these to think about local solutions and how local solutions can be easily brought in through local knowledge 
and that local knowledge about lake pond systems riverine systems or any kind of coexistence which that community and the culture of that region has taught people of that region there cannot be a global template for climate crisis or climate challenges the only local uh, local solutions and cultural references will make it easier for us to reach a wider population and a lot more faster so tell me about the importance when you clean up a pond or something you have to sustain interest of the neighbors in maintaining the work that you've done can you tell me a little bit about the work you've done with water literacy and educating people to maintain these clean areas for most of us environment or anything related to environment today is so negative because we've always been told the ice caps are melting the sea level is rising this animal is threatened who's ever told us anything positive or even if they're sharing a positive story how much of truth is there in that positive story so we wanted to show results to the public for people who've only be witnessed a dirty water body close by when we get down to clean that water body we've seen uh, active to very active participation from a limited set of uh, citizens of that region and when that happens when a lot of people get together to clean up that water body the number of people who abuse the water body gradually reduces it is not a magical wand that overnight things change but there is a gradual shift in attitude which brings back those memories of that we need to respect the natural resource we need to treat this water body better and make sure that it's home for all life forms so that uh, evolutionary attitude change is what we are trying to achieve through repeat volunteering efforts by doing so we are focusing on sustaining the restoration that we have taken upon us to revive that water body so sustainability depends on our repeat efforts with innovative mechanisms we can't keep going back to public with negative news we have to share positive news action oriented results which will bring in that faith and trust is what we've learned so you speak very persuasively about the importance of um, local interventions and persuading local people but are the techniques you use translatable to other countries beyond india most definitely most definitely as i was mentioning this is in rocket science and all that this needs is passion commitment i'm gifted to be work very many young people in my own country uh, ranging from my teammates to volunteers who come out and support all that we need is to follow scientific principles we cannot just get done things the way we want we have to follow scientific principles and rule of land wherever we are taking up these responsibilities keeping these two as the yardstick if we can bring in a large population to follow certain principles definitely in any country we can revive any natural habitat from a forest to a lake to a river to even the oceans so the environmental crisis that we are facing will find its solution through local simulations across the world of the many projects you've done uh, with EFI working on water bodies is there one that's most meaningful to you almost all the 137 projects that we worked on are emotionally connected to us meaningful whether it's the koldi lake which i had an opportunity to work on with my team ram nitin and others or uh, different water bodies in maharashtra which is in western india 
every water body has a story has an emotional connect and uh, the that one frog that one tree sapling or that one rainfall which fills up that lake it it feeds our lives with so many memories that i can't be more i can't even ask for anything more in this lifetime that i'm blessed with wonderful memories and collaborations that it keeps us going on what we're doing Arun, I think I have time for one last question, and I'd like to ask a question from the audience, and I'll read it to you. This is from Antonio Kruger in Florida, who says, what is the most impactful thing an individual watching this can do? Um, individual social responsibility, to be aware of the natural habitat that surrounds our neighborhood. Do we live close to a marsh? Are we living close to a hill, to the coast, to the river? And how do I adapt to that local condition? And what is the kind of waste that I'm responsible for, which I'm generating, and its impact on my local neighborhood? My consumerism has to shun down, and I have to regain my status as a human in this being. If I do that, I'm going to be a responsible citizen, thereby supporting the planetary living. That's my request to the member who asked this question. Well, we'll take away your message of trying to be responsible citizens. Thank you, Arun Krishnamurthy. That was a fascinating discussion. I thank you for this opportunity. Namaste. Unfortunately, that's all we have time with Arun, but I'll be back after a short video with Water.org co-founders, actor Matt Damon and his co-founder, Gary White. Welcome back. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer at The Washington Post. It's World Water Week, and I'm delighted to welcome two experts on the global water crisis and co-founders of Water.org and WaterEquity.org. Award-winning actor Matt Damon and his partner Gary White. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. Delighted to have you. So, Gary, I'd like to start with you, if I may. I think in November last year, you and Matt wrote that 2.7 billion people lack access to safe water and to sanitation. Those numbers are just staggering. Yeah. Who is most affected by this and what are you doing to try and solve those problems? Hmm. Well, yeah, it is it is unbelievable that, you know, given how far we've advanced as a planet in terms of meeting basic needs, that that people, billions, should still not have access to improved water and sanitation. And that, you know, this is a problem we solved more than 100 years ago in this country when we figured out how to, to treat water. And you could imagine, you know, today, if we cured cancer 100 years ago, if we still had, you know, millions of people dying from that each year, it would be unthinkable. So these are the most vulnerable populations around the world that we're, we're working with, trying to get them access to the water and sanitation solutions that best meet their needs. And so, you know, throughout the world, we've been able to have an impact on more than 33 million people so far who have been able to achieve water or sanitation uh, improvements. Can you give me a sense of some of the innovative financing you've done um, in order to address these issues? Yeah, I think it's, you know, what's key to this, the key insight uh, of this work. And, you know, I've been doing this really since I was an undergrad in university in you know, the last 30 years. Uh, the key insight isn't about uh, like engineering solutions. And I'm an engineer, so I can kind of kind of say that it's really around finance and the, the insight that 
that I discovered in meeting people from around the world in these communities was that they were already paying for water and they were paying in terms of their time if they're walking hours to collect water or sometimes in urban areas they have to pay these local water vendors who sell water off the back of a truck that's not very good quality. And so they're spending an immense amount of their time and sometimes up to 25% of their income for water. And what we discovered was that if you could get them access to a small loan, then they could pay to connect to a local water utility and they could save a tremendous amount of money. Or if they got that water connection and they didn't have to walk miles anymore, they could buy back their time and work at a paying job. So what we do is we help people get access to affordable small loans so that they can build a rainwater harvesting system, pay for a water connection to a utility, build a toilet, and then they repay those loans and that money can be recycled. Wow, yeah, interesting. So Matt, you have been involved in environmental issues for, for a long time. You could have taken up any cause. So why water? What's the backstory here? Uh, well, I, I went about 15 years ago on kind of on a trip that uh, that was organized for me. It was just to kind of look into issues of extreme poverty. And and um, I, I just was shocked at how water kind of underpinned everything. And it was kind of a baseline issue um, underneath every real issue of extreme poverty. And, and nobody was talking about it. It's like such a hard thing for us to relate to in the West because you know, we're never that far away from a clean drink of water. It's like the, the kitchen sink is just there. Um, actually, the water in our toilet is cleaner than most people have access to, the people that we're talking about. So, um, so and solving that problem is just an absolute game changer for people. And, and uh, you know, um, um, looking at the difference that that makes in people's lives. I mean, you know, the issue is really for women and girls. Um, girls are, are, are not in school because they're charged with water collection for their family. So they they have to drop out of school. And so you can imagine what that does for their 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 life outcomes. Um, you know, women, if you if you're if you're able to um, deliver clean, clean water to a household, a, a woman suddenly can can spend more hours working at a job. She can be an income generator for a family like there's there are all these these massive kind of benefits to um, to this if you can solve it. And it, as Gary just said, we solved it for ourselves 100 years ago in the West. So we know what the solutions are. Um, this was an interesting one in the sense that, you know, I think when most people hear about this, they go, oh, well, go drill a well, like what we would call direct impact work. And that's kind of where we started. But we ended up uh, in a place I don't think <clears throat> either of us could have predicted. Um, uh, in in finance, talking about you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just it's just not it's not where it's it's borrowing from the work of Muhammad Yunus, which was absolutely pioneering and brilliant, um, but applying it to the water sector and and these loans that Gary's talking about that that he he's being modest that that he he kind of he he came up with this idea applying it to the water space and these loans that we're we're, we're loaning money to the poorest women in the uh, in you know on the face of the earth and they're paying back it over 99%. So it's a real amazing success story about uh, these people one at a time kind of solving their own problems if you can just nudge the market towards them um, and understand that uh, that that they're see them as customers and citizens rather than as a, than mm -hmm. uh, just a problem to be solved. So why two foundations? What's the difference between them? 
so if, if you look at it from the context of water.org and water equity, the two organizations Matt and I co-founded, water.org is really about understanding this market at the, the base of the pyramid, people living in poverty and kind of dissecting it and seeing where there's market failures and correcting those. So what we do is we work with these financial institutions to kind of de-risk lending for water and sanitation. And what we see is we stimulate this demand from the bottom up there's more need for capital from the top down to, to uh, grow these loan portfolios. So what we did is we created also Water Equity, which is an asset manager, the first asset manager to be really focused on deploying capital to meet the water and sanitation crisis. And Water Equity actually raises investment capital in, in the U.S. and deploys that as debt to some of these financial institutions so they can make many, many more loans for water and sanitation. And so that, that total capital that's been deployed in loans now is about $2.6 billion overall. And water equity has been a big part of that to be able to tap the global, global capital markets, provide a financial return to investors while also delivering social impact for millions of people who get access to water and sanitation. So you see, if we can blow this up beyond just thinking of this as a charity problem and we can tap the capital markets, and create that value for people living in poverty and a financial return for investors, then we can really match the magnitude of our solution to the magnitude of the problem. So we have this yeah, other water... pandemic. Okay, carry on, Matt, if you want to. No, no, I was just going to say it was born out of this tour. Uh, one of the trips we were on years ago in India, um, I can't remember six or seven years ago, whenever we were there, we, we were meeting with all these microfinance institutions, all these partners of ours, and we kept asking them, what are the bottlenecks, right? Like mm -hmm. what's, and, and access to affordable capital was what they all said to us independent of one another. And that was like a real eye opener for us. It was, you know, that was the issue. And so that's when this started a conversation with us about, well, you know, these social capital markets, like there are people who would want their money to, to do good while it, you know, you know, you know, as they invested and, and, uh, and 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 would view this as a um, you know as as an upside like you know the the fact that these dollars are going out and being recycled and doing what they're doing um, you know would 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 be something we could kind of we we could attract investors um, to do so that's how water equity kind of started uh, for us. So so Matt, just to follow up on that, what responsibility do wealthy Western nations have to to solve this problem, which is a global problem? Well, I mean, look, as we were saying, we solved it for ourselves. We know what the solutions are. Um, there are some solutions like this, which, you know, can reach, you know, upwards of 500 million people just with this. It, this is like a, a painless nudge of the markets towards uh, towards people and, 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 and just letting them solve their own problems. So um, but, you know, I think that's that's kind of a personal question. I mean. You know, I mean, I, I think I think it's incumbent on us in the West uh, to do this. Look at the wealth on this planet. I mean, we can we can figure this stuff out. Um, you know, the exciting news for us is just that that there are solutions and and it's about getting people activated and energized around them. Like, it's, it, you know, once people understand how, uh, you know, uh, how available these solutions are, um, you know, we can solve this relatively quickly.
Yeah, this is, feels very optimistic on that level, but we've had this pandemic right now, which is exacerbating so many problems of poverty and increasing differences. Gary, how has the pa pandemic affected the people you're working with to try and solve these problems? And also, how has it affected investors and other people? Is it galvanizing action or the reverse? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what, it, what it's done is really drive home the importance of clean water. If we think about the start of the pandemic, you know, what were the first two things we were told to do? One, wash your hands, wash them off, you know, often and vigorously and stay at home, right? So when you look at that and you're someone living, you know, in a low-income country and you have to walk to get your water if you have access, you know, anywhere near at all, first of all, if you don't have the water, you can't wash your hands and then you have to leave your home or else you're going to die from dehydration. So it's had a tremendous impact. And and we know that as, as all of these diseases that are related to, to water in these pandemics, it's almost all going to start with wash your hands. And so what we saw was a, a pretty dramatic fall off initially in terms of the work that we were able to do to, to help people because our teams just couldn't get out into the field and generate these loans. But fortunately, we've, we've seen a pretty strong bounce back in, in most of the markets. And we're now up to on track to, to meet the needs of 8 million people this year when we thought we were only going to be able to get to six. So I think we're, we're seeing kind of the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of how people are coping with this to, to meet the need. And at the end of the day, you don't have any choice. You've got to figure out how to get safe water every day or else you're, you're going to perish. Yeah. Matt, the phrase often comes up of water being a basic human right. Is that your belief? And what's stalling, uh, what's impeding the general acceptance of that around the world? I really think it's lack of understanding. I think if, you know, I, I had, I was lucky enough to go on this trip and have this aha moment. And when we start meeting people, you start to understand the scale of the potential that's being lost. Like the very first kid that I met um, was a 14 year old girl. Uh, I went on a water collection with her in Zambia and you know, somebody, you know, there was a bore well about a mile from her house. And so she came home from school. I was waiting for her and we walked together this mile to get the water. And I had a, we had a translator. So I'm talking to her and, and what, what came out from this kind of little interview I was doing as we were walking was she wanted to be a nurse. She wanted to go to the big city of Lusaka, right? We were in this very rural area of Zambia. She's like, no, I'm not staying here. I'm going to Lusaka. I'm going to be a nurse. And as I left, I realized she reminded me so much of, of Ben Affleck and, and me when we were kids. Like we were going to go to the big city. We were going to New York. We were going to be actors. And, uh, and I, just, we just, I just really connected with her in that way. And I realized as I drove away that had someone not had the foresight to sink this bore well a mile from her house, none of that would have been possible. All of this ambition and potential, and it just would have been absolutely destroyed because she would not have been in school. She would have been spending her day collecting water, searching for water, and, uh, and she wouldn't have these kind of dreams and ambitions and goals. Um, and, and so it's not just the senseless death, like this, the, the stupid death, as Bono likes to say, like it's just totally pointless that somebody should die because they have diarrhea in 2021. But that is the case, right? And that's the case writ large. It's a, you know, a million people a year, uh, children are dying of, you know, for completely, from completely preventable things. Um, so it's, but it's not just that, it's also all the like, massive loss of potential. And if you can just 
if you can fix this one thing, it suddenly opens up uh, this kind of vast store of human potential. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's almost, it's, it's incalculable when you think about what the ramifications are if we can, if we can solve this. So Gary, do you think universal access is possible within our lifetimes? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that, uh, again, if, if we think of this as a problem that we can tap the markets for, you know, that's that's what is inherently scalable in, in kind of the business world. And if we can start thinking about this, uh, you know, this problem really containing its own solution, then we can look at philanthropy that we bring in as catalytic to get to those to those markets. And so that's exactly what we do. We do need the philanthropic capital to to work to kind of set these market corrections in, into motion. But once that happens, the value that's created kind of takes over from there. I, I know, you know, uh, one of the, the, the folks in, in Kenya, her name was Alice, you know, she was growing crops at her home, but uh, and using the water that she had nearby to do that. But then what happens during the dry season, she was having to pay someone $60 every month for the water she needed to water her crops. And so she was able to take out a loan and build a storage tank, a storage reservoir, and her loan payments were only $20 a month to get that paid off. So you can see right there the, the, the value that's created. And what's different about water is like this value is created overnight right with with other things like like education you know that value is going to be created for that girl maybe 10 years down the road when she's working or for agriculture maybe it's going to be at the end of the agricultural season but when you get a water connection or a water tank one day and the next day you you able to save all that money it's instant that's why it allows us to bring in the market capital to to be able to help these people get over this finance hump so that they can do this and when you look at those examples and multiply that by the millions that this does turn into a scalable solution that does absolutely allow us to to address this in our lifetime i wanted to bring you both back to a comment you both made that, that this this problem has been solved in this country but you know i've been down to the navajo nation where the third of the people don't have uh, running water in their homes and along the texas border there are people without reliable sanitation and then Eastern Kentucky, there's lots of mine, you know, mine filings in the in the water. And Flint, we all remember those stories. The things you're doing overseas, relevant to the U.S., is this are these methods that you could uh, repurpose for use in this country? Hmm. I, I think to a certain extent, yes. I think you know we uh, th there's absolutely no reason with the wealth that we have in this country and the initiatives that we have in this country that we should have things like Flint happen. But those are kind of breakdowns in in, in governance oftentimes, or you know just not putting the the right emphasis on water quality in these regions. And so it's if we look at using like government matching grants some of these resources and that was one of the great things about the united states and the epa and the clean water act back in the 70s there was a lot of capital put in that really largely solved this problem now we do see things cropping up like flint that can be addressed 
more through better policy and more governance and better regulation. And that's really what we need to do more of here and invest in infrastructure because we are backsliding, frankly, in this country, in some of these populations that you're talking about. Some of them actually had safe water before and we're backsliding because we're not investing in the infrastructure in this country. And as we know, it, you know, the last four years or so that became kind of a running joke that every week was going to be infrastructure week and it never happened. And now's the time to, to make that happen. But just to carry on, on on that theme, we've also got climate change playing into this dynamic. Um, and we're certainly seeing that playing out in this country and elsewhere. Gary, maybe you could tell us how that complicates the issues going ahead of water safety. Yeah, that, that this is the really kind of disturbing part of this, this whole uh, enterprise is that with the climate change, uh, when we think of climate change, we really think of water, right? We think of like uh, too much water in some places and not enough in others, droughts and floods and hurricanes. And the, what this actually does is it puts us at risk again to backslide in terms of some of the, the populations that we're working with, you know, once they get access, it still can be very tenuous. And when you have these events that wipe out water supplies, you then see the fact that you're going to see, you know, what we are calling climate refugees right now. What we really mean about those is water refugees, because we're already starting to see this where people are being forced to migrate because of, of water stress, water scarcity. And so what we need to do is certainly look at mitigation efforts around climate. But we also need to look at adaptation and resilience for those populations. So those people who don't have access now, we've got to do more to get them access because it's gonna exacerbate their issue. And those who do have that tenuous access, we've got to give them the resilience they need so that they can retain that access. So Matt, we talked to Jane Fonda about some of these issues um, a while ago, and she referred to the US response as moderate and said it's no time for moderation. We need, we need something. More than that, how encouraged are you by President Biden's responses now to the climate crisis? Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly encouraging. I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, we're not even through 100 days yet, you know, like I, Gary and I were, you know, we, we did some interviews when, when the last president was uh, in his first 100 days. And I think our response is exactly the same, which is these, these administrations really deserve a chance. They're up against a lot. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine the, the, it's humbling when you think about the amount of pressure on all these different fronts that these administrations deal with. And so it's, I think, I think, I think all voters need to root for the American president always and, and, uh, and, and give them time to, um, to engage with this stuff. But certainly this, the, the early signs are encouraging and, uh, you know, and, and we'll see what happens. I mean, certainly, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I've, I've. I've thrown stones at American presidents for my entire adult life, so uh, so I'm sure I'll give I'll give uh, President Biden his fair share. But but no, I I I think we want to give uh, this administration a chance, and uh, and uh, and so far so good. But did we go backwards in the last four years under Trump? I mean, of course. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what's the role of celebrities and non, the nonprofits you can found in uh, talking to lawmakers, advancing legislation, um, changing perspectives on these sorts of issues? I don't know, ultimately. And I think that that's kind of, you know, I, I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I'm here. I'm doing this interview. You're talking to me. So people are going to watch this. I don't know how many people or some people might have tuned out by now. 
Um, but that's kind of what I can do. Um, you know, the work that we do is I, I, I made a great decision in partnering with Gary, you know, a decade ago. And, and, uh, I asked for the greatest water expert in the world. And when that person didn't take my calls, I got Gary and, uh, and no, the, no, this insight that he had about, about finance was, you know, had we done, had we limited ourselves to direct impact work, we'd, we'd, we'd have helped probably a million or 2 million people by now. But the idea that we're doing that every quarter, that's a, that's a real kind of game changer in this space. And that was Gary's insight. And um, so as much as we can, as we can kind of put that out there and let people know this is really, really working and that there's all this low hanging fruit, there's another 500 million people who could be reached with this, this solution alone, notwithstanding any other uh, kind of innovations we come up with, but this alone, that's a that's a real number. And uh, as Bill Clinton like looked at this year about ten years ago, and when Gary came up with it, and he and he got it right away. And he goes, look, just I mean, he was like, he just said, you got to run those numbers up, run those numbers up, just keep running them up. He's you know because it was <laughs> undeniable, and he knew it, and and he and that was the advice that, he, and so that's what we've been doing. We just spent all this time doing that, and now we're at this point where we're we're hitting a couple million people a quarter. Um, which is really, I mean, that, that's very, very exciting. So the more we can get that out, um, you know, the, the, the more people will buy into it and uh, the more impact we can have. So, so the long and the short of it is, I don't know, but I think I'm helping. Well, we hope you're helping. Gary, um, are there particular countries, I think of the Dutch always as managing water, both flooding and drought cycles that we seem to be heading more and more into, but are there particular countries that have models you think could be emulated? Yeah, I think certainly when I look at the countries that we're, we're most focused on, we do see really good examples. And and by the way, just to back up a second, I mean, now, now Matt's being humble. Matt is actually one of the world's water <laughs> experts now. I mean, Matt can sit down, you know, with the president of the World Bank and talk water, which he's done, right? And so in terms of celebrities doing something to, to immerse themselves in an issue uh, this deep, and really get subject matter expertise that counts for so much more than than just kind of showing up you know for a, a celebrity fundraiser and i think that's that's the distinction between matt and i think a lot of uh, folks who endorse concepts so that said i do think uh, one of the countries that, that i see as a great model is is india right now i mean india has kind of put the political capital and the financial capital uh, behind getting everyone access to sanitation and now getting everyone access to to safe water, and uh, you know, and, you know, speaking to Matt, and, and you know, we've sat down with some of the finance experts in India to see what we could do to help that along, and uh, you know, I'm encouraged by how we've been able to use our water credit example, and the government of India has been able to kind of use that as well to multiply the the impact, right? So. <laughs> The fact that we can work with India to get utilities to connect more people because those people can get loans to then pay into that infrastructure and to make it more sustainable. That's what governments and water utilities love to see. And so you, you how, how many times have you been to India? Are these sort of return visits that you have to go on to develop relationships? And how much time do you spend in the field when you go there? Are you meeting mostly with, with pe people in leadership positions? Hmm. Well, what's... go ahead, Matt. I was just gonna... No, no, no. I, yeah. To, to, I mean, 
don't know how many times, a lot of times to India. <laughs> right. Uh, to a lot, because we, we, we have a lot of, our most mature loan programs are there. Um, and so we've been going for, I mean, for 10 years. Um, and I try to go on, a, on, on kind of a big trip every year. Um, but uh, obviously last year we didn't go anywhere because of COVID. Um, but and and it's 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 mostly visiting. It's they're very they're not public trips. They're it's it's mostly just kind of getting out and seeing our work and just staying connected to our work. Uh, uh, we have a lot of partner relationships and kind of managing those and seeing our partners and seeing what they're doing. Uh, and then sometimes you end up like at the Reserve Bank of India and you're like, well, I need to go get a shirt, <laughs> you know, and a tie. <laughs> um, but they're but they tend to be they tend to be it, it's not like going and meeting heads of state or anything like that. No, no, it's 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 more about it's more about kind of, you know, going out and, and, and staying connected to the to the day to day work that our partners are doing. So, Gary, you were talking about climate refugees. Land is becoming all the more precious as as the population is growing. Water becomes more difficult. Do you see the potential for conflict over water in the future? Oh, absolutely. There, there's already been conflict over, over water around the world. Uh, you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, the places that could be flashpoints, even like in, in the Middle East, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Israel, Palestine, there's there's huge challenges there. You look at Darfur and what happened there. I mean, a lot of that was rooted in the fact that, that people didn't have access to water and they migrate to new places. And as, as you know, the last thing you want to be in this world is a refugee right now and what, what comes along with that. And I think that you start to see these things come together in a way that they do drive conflict. And, you know, there's been a lot written about, you know, the fact that the projections are that the majority of conflicts in the future are going to be rooted in, in water access and, and water scarcity. So there's no doubt that that's, that's in the offing. I think we probably have time for one question for each of you at the end. It's World Water Week. What do you most want the public to know going ahead? What's your single most important message to give to people in this very significant week? And maybe Matt, you could go first. Okay, so Francis, that's the million dollar question for us because it's always, it's, it's, it's a, such a complex issue. So the question is, how do we give a digestible soundbite um, for an issue that's so hard for people to connect with, right? When you say, when you talk about AIDS or cancer or, you know, everybody's life has been touched by things like that. So it's really easy to, for people to make a one-to-one -one connection. Um, and this is an issue for which it's, it's very hard to get anybody you know. If you're somebody who lives in America and all your friends live in America or in Europe, then it's very hard to connect to this. So, um, I, I think the big message is that this is a, it is the issue for people who do not have access. And if you can just step outside of your own experience and imagine what it would be like to not have access to water, then uh, it would instantly uh, make you engage with, with this issue and understand why we have a World Water Day and why we should be thinking about it. Gary, can you offer your take on yeah. that? Well, as you can tell, I mean, we've put a lot of kind of thought into this and it's, there's complexity to this. Uh, there's markets, you know, this, this is a complex issue and we have some complex solutions for a good reason because they work and they scale. But I think just boiling it down for one person out there that's like, you know, go to water.org, make a donation. And what I believe and we've proven is like 
you know, even with $5, you know, we can go out and get somebody access to safe water when we translate that into, into solutions. So I think don't be overwhelmed. If you want to take action, water.org and uh, make a donation, and that will result in people getting water. And one last word from you, Matt. Are you optimistic looking ahead? Always. <laughs> I am. I can't <laughs> help it. <laughs> I yeah, I really am. I really am. And in terms, in, in, in terms of this issue, Francis, uh, you know, there really there are solutions that are that are right there. And so I'm very optimistic about that. It really is about engagement. It's about getting people to pay attention to it. Uh, once they do, they get excited about it. Well, you've been very inspiring, both of you. Thank you, Gary White and Matt Damon, for joining me today. Thank, Thank you, Francis. Well, we were delighted to have you. That was a wonderful conversation. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. If you would like to learn more about our climate solutions information, please go to wapo.st. The, the link is at the bottom of your page, wapo.st slash climate solutions for more information. And we have lots more coming up for you. At noon today, my colleague, Jackie Alamany, We'll be interviewing the Senator from North Dakota, Republican Kevin Kramer, and then I'll be back tomorrow with the founder of the Born This Way Foundation, Cynthia Germanotta. I look forward to seeing you then, and thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.